Imagine, as the world gets hotter and fresh water becomes more scarce, AI systems whose roots lie in racist algorithms control access to your water, and water security is guaranteed only for those who can afford it. Averting this dystopian future demands we strive to move beyond our assumptions around racism, capitalism, consumption, collective responsibility, and the desirability of engineering our way out of the climate crisis. Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like linguistics, technology, game and object design, and ethics. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Theodora Dreyer, the research lead for climate and water at the AI Now Institute and research assistant professor at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering. We're also joined by Dr. Amra Salomon, an assistant professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a founding member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Environmental Justice. Dr. Dreyer and Dr. Salomon, among others, collaborated to produce the report Water Justice and Technology, covering topics on both North and Central America. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I was really excited to see your report come out a couple of months ago, right? Would you all be able to give us an overview of what the report is about? This report was a collective project that brought folks together, academics, artists, activists, and engineers. And it is a meditation and a deep critical reflection on water and specifically on relief and crisis, which are dominant frameworks for inciting policy and economic change and climate transition policies. So this report is making an intervention by bringing that deep reflexivity onto these terms relief in crisis in hopes that it can be applied more broadly to all crisis policies as a methodology um, and offer a paradigm flip away from these future-oriented relief frameworks to advancing repair and reparations and climate justice. One of the key pieces that we are putting forward in this report is the suggestion that instead of basing water policy and water decisions response to technologically created crises or extractive crises, that we actually situate the framework of water justice as one of the nodes Mm -hmm. through which thinking about and making decisions about water should happen. And so we are trying to put forward this demand for water justice that will really push, I think, the envelope of the types of solutions that get thrown at us in situations like drought or in situations where we are seeing more and more reduction of access to water, access to clean water for marginalized communities, people all over the world. We're sort of demanding that instead of basing water policy on efficiency or basing water policy on industry or the needs of military, that it should be based on the needs of people and it should be the people most impacted by water policy. The people who have been historically marginalized by water policy and water decisions 
people who have important complex relationships to water as its own entity, as a non-human being, and that that justice be something that we demand. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about how the report came to be? how you gathered all these scholars together from across the hemisphere to address these critical issues? The initial coming together of scholars happened during the pandemic. And so it was September, October, November, December in 2021. And so I say that because this is just to underscore the fact that we're coming together virtually. So we're networking and getting in touch, not in person, but doing outreach together. This group of people are folks who have been thinking about water and society, water and technology for a long time. These are people who are authors. They're leading voices on these topics. I was interested in people who I thought were good storytellers because I thought it was really important to have these short form stories about water. But then my outreach is only part of the story because this was very much a collective outreach process. And a lot of folks brought other folks in who they thought would resonate with it and whose sort of approach to this sort of work fit in with the project's energy. So we have a mutual friend who introduced us because we were both working on different aspects of Colorado River history, studying how the Colorado River has been extracted and how water is measured and digitized at the detriment to indigenous peoples and communities of color. And my family is, um, on my father's side, we are from a non-federally recognized Otham and UMM community at the lower point of the Colorado River from Yuma, Arizona. Our community went through a very unique process of almost getting federal recognition at the turn of the 20th century and then having it taken away due to the desire for settlers to come in and take the farmland near the Colorado River that Native peoples were living on. So I'm doing a lot of community-based research with my community and with descendants of our community uh, to document that history. And so that's how we got connected. And then as we were talking about this larger report, we started thinking about how do we form what we term, I think for ourselves, radical intellectual or activist academic relationships around solving some of these problems that are really critical to our communities and addressing harm that's happening historically and currently. Because none of us, I think, who came together for the report are coming from a position of wanting to perpetuate colonial research or the harmful white supremacist heteropatriarchal colonial dynamics of research or within the different institutions that we happen to work at. So we're all interested in producing knowledge that will be useful for the people who are most impacted and also collaborating and thinking and creating together in a way that's not competitive, that's not trying to take each other down, but actually create something generative for all of us to bounce off of. All of us now are in collaboration with each other in some way. Now we're reading each other. We have future projects together and we're really trying to build because all of us care really deeply about these issues and the communities impacted. Many of us are from the communities impacted. Can I ask, is this something that you all did on the side from your day jobs? Did you get paid to do this? 
it seems like a lot of work went into this. So is this something that you were doing as part of your day job in that sense? Or is this something just done on the side for no money? Or was there funding to get all this done? Yeah. <laughs> so I think what Amra just described, that coming together of folks who were positioned through academic structures to be in competition with each other because we're experts. I just did scare quotes um, on, <laughs> on water, but it wasn't like that. It was really bringing people together to reflect on a shared node of inquiry. And the reason I started to answer your question with this response is because we're sort of working outside of the norms of academia, that means we're growing new ways of doing things. And so we have to equally be imaginative about getting research funding. In organizing the project, I had some funds to give honoraria to the contributors. That's really important to me. In my opinion, everyone should have more honoraria and there should be more resource funding for this sort of work because it's not valued and incentivized right now in the academy to do collaborative and collective projects. Um, and it really should be because it's really defying the norms and the structures that, as Amra said, are extractive and toxic. And not to be melodramatic, this was a wonderful project for me in my career. It was really healing and gave me a lot of hope. And so things that are growing out of this right now are not incentivized by work at the moment, but I do believe that the fields are shifting into this direction. I think more and more this work is going to be valued. I can see where any one of the articles in this report could be a springboard for just an incredible amount of research and activism and policy change and so forth. But I almost feel like, to me, from outside academe and outside everything, except that I like water, right? <laughs> it's a good cross-section of how these structures may impact African Americans in the South differently than they're impacting indigenous groups in Latin America, but there is impact and it's the same structures and impulses. At one point, there's some reference to necrocapitalism that, you know, it doesn't matter how many bodies end up under your mining equipment if you're making shareholder value at the end of the day that approach that you took with case studies sort of lends itself to really powerful tools in the policy realm, because every one of those is something that people can get their minds around and say, oh, I see where the lithium boom is harming indigenous communities the same way that real estate development has harmed African-American communities or what have you. The case study from Mexico City was so shocking where they sort of intentionally engineer things so that the poor people get flooded and that it's sort of this direct line from the policy to the outcome and to the impact on these marginalized neighborhoods. Yeah, we certainly hope that that's the outcome. I think one of the conversations internally we had was that oftentimes science, quote unquote, gets deployed to support very extractive, very harmful policy outcomes. 
And so one of the things that we wanted to problematize was how is science or research being utilized in a negative way to further corporate interests, further military interests, further colonial interests at the detriment of frontline communities and marginalized communities all over? But also, how can we problematize this question of science and research and connect it to a larger sort of worldview that situates where the science and research is produced and coming from? One of the things that a lot of the pieces do is tell the history of how different scientific tools have been developed, problematize that history, and then also tell the history of the communities who've been impacted. And so now we know, okay, we've got this piece of data, but this piece of data was against the interests of the vast majority of communities impacted by the data. And then it's being used to justify further harm. And then it's greenwashed and you'll see, you know, policy maneuvers and public speaking points, then trying to make this data look like this is the data that's going to save us from climate change. And actually, this is the data that caused the problem. If the tools of extraction that created climate change are the only tools we're turning to and using to innovate to solve the problem, we're actually just perpetuating the cycle of extraction and we're just going to end up with another extraction caused problem. And so I think that's the larger framework a lot of us are coming from is, you know, how do we connect narrative and history and actual situations on the ground with the way that data is produced and managed and then utilized. Can I just ask just a little side note? You used a word I'm not familiar with a few times, problematize. Did I hear that correctly? What it means ultimately is that we're posing the question, right? So instead of taking the assumption that something is what it says it is or is accurate or is holistic, we're actually unpacking it, questioning it, questioning the premises of it and unpacking it as if it were a potential problem, right? It's about having a critical lens, you know, not just accepting the information that you're given. And part of, I think, how many of us as researchers, whatever discipline that we're in, we're trained to question the premises of the information that we receive, just to make sure that what we're interpreting is actually accurate or not, you know? <laughs> That's funny because I was also going to ask about a phrase you threw out at the beginning, talking about the Colorado River. You were talking about the digitalization of the river and how that data can be used in a way that is exploitive or extractive. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by the digitalization of the river? Because it seems like that's something that sort of maybe applies more broadly here because your group has looked at data bias and the way that data is collected and the way that that can twist policy and outcome. From the problematizing things, I think this is very important when you're looking at the nexus or the intersections of natural resources, water, climate change, with technology. Because there's a lot of terminologies, especially the added axes of policy. There's a lot of terms that are employed to uphold these extractive economic systems that just become totally naturalized. The prompt for our entire report was to reflect on the term of relief. So we were each as individual authors coming from our different backgrounds, because while we've all been working on water for many years, we're doing so in different ways in different domains. But we each had the shared node to think about what is relief? What is relief doing? So to put it to question. And it created this really beautiful thing because 
since we're all meditating on the same question, this very almost bounded question, then we're able to reveal so much more. And then we're able to build relationships and bridges with our work and see themes emerge and see critique emerge. Also, by reflecting on relief, we get to engage crisis. And that self-perpetuating cycle that Amra was talking about, crisis begets more crisis. And this is something I've traced in looking at the history of algorithmic computing, which is how I came to this work trying to give history to algorithms. I see how over the course of the last century, there's a stated information crisis, and then there's a solution. It's a technological solution, but then that technological solution doesn't work. And so there's another crisis, and then it begets another crisis. The shared context that Amra and I work on is the greater Colorado River region. And so I've been looking at algorithms being employed to solve scarcity crisis over the last century on the Colorado River. But what I've discovered, they're being used to perpetuate settler colonialism, to appropriate water and land, and to create not only more technological crises, because the systems aren't as efficient as they want them to be, but it's creating real-life water crisis and drought crisis. So the systems are the cause of the crisis, while they're also being sold as the solution to the drought crisis. I think it's important to talk about anxiety (laughs) and um, these human-effective conditions like control and monopolies, because these are all very highly irrational programs to chase after. And it almost has that veneer of scientific rationalization on top of it, it sounds like. Theodora, Amra, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about your work. Thank you so much for having us and for engaging with this piece of work. And if you would like more information about Theodora and Amra's work, you can visit AINowInstitute.org as well as the hyphen ciej.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.